This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for May 11, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our guest on this episode of C-SPAN's The Weekly podcast is James Acton. He is the co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, with a date and location now set for the upcoming summit between President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. We take a closer look at how the United States prepares for this historic summit, what are some of the potential pitfalls, and how the U.S. and the world can measure success following the June 12th meeting in Singapore. James Acton, we're a month before this historic summit in Singapore. How should the president, how should the administration prepare for this? Well, Steve, first, thanks for having me today. Um, This is a very unusual summit, not just because of the people involved, uh, not just because it's unprecedented for the U.S. president to meet the North Korean leader, but because normally a summit is the end point of diplomacy. Uh, Normally, by the time the two leaders get in the room together, uh, all of the details have essentially been negotiated. The summit is the capstone. It's the end of the process. In this case, the summit really marks the beginning of a diplomatic process. And the United States has not very much time now uh, to do what would normally take months, if not years, to prepare for. Um, I think the key thing the U.S. has to decide is what the goal is. Um, I'm sure we're going to discuss this later. I do not believe that North Korea is interested in denuclearizing it in the sense we mean it of giving up all their nuclear weapons. Um, That's currently the U.S. goal. Uh, If you can't reconcile those two, then diplomacy is not likely to lead anywhere. So, you know, what I would urge the State Department, the president and the people who surround him to do uh, is firstly to calibrate their goals, uh, to choose um, uh, what is... um, uh, reasonable and achievable. Uh, And in terms of the president's role personally in this, you know, as I say, normally leaders don't do the details of the negotiations themselves. Normally everything is worked out in advance. Occasionally maybe there's a few really contentious final points uh, that need to be sorted out by the two leaders themselves in person at the summit. Uh, But certainly the vast majority of the details have got to be settled in advance. Um, And that's what I would encourage the president to instruct his team to do, to to treat this like any other summit uh, and, 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 and to have professional diplomats preparing the way in advance. Some have compared this to the historic meeting in Reykjavik, Iceland, between Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, and President Ronald Reagan that ultimately led to disbandment of nuclear weapons between the two countries. Is that a is that a fair parallel? Uh, I actually don't think so. Um, you know, in the case of the Reykjavik summit in, in 86, us um, and the Soviets were peers. Um, we didn't like the Soviet Union. We thought they were dangerous. But they were our peers, and they did not acquire nuclear weapons illegally against international law. They used espionage, they stole U.S. secrets for their first bomb, but they didn't break international law in the process. Um, North Korea is not our peer. North Korea violated international law when it acquired nuclear weapons. Um, our, you know, This is not unlike Reykjavik, in which the two sides were deciding upon uh, symmetric actions that each one could take. We'd give up nu- uh, certain nuclear weapons, the Soviets would give up certain nuclear weapons. What came out of that was a reciprocal treaty, the INF Treaty, in which each side agreed to give up all medium and intermediate range ground and uh, ground launch crews and ballistic missiles. That's not the kind of negotiation that's going to be going on in Singapore. Um, we're not giving up our nuclear weapons because 
to try to induce the North Koreans to do so. Though if you listen to North Korean rhetoric, I think that's probably what they're aiming for here, believe it or not. Um, you know, we are, we are, you know, we, we don't recognize North Korea as a nuclear armed state. Um, we shouldn't recognize, in my opinion, North Korea as a nuclear armed state. So I actually think that the two um, uh, summits, Reykjavik and Singapore, are very, very different. How will you measure this summit as a success? What's your benchmark? So I will measure it as a success if it is if it produces a diplomatic process that is sustainable and that has a chance of making the world a safer place. I think it's going to be very, very hard to judge in the days or weeks immediately after the summit whether it was a success. We'll know whether it was a failure. You know, if there's no final document, if the two leaders walk away with recriminations, it was a failure. But actually, it's going to take us months, if not years, to assess whether this summit was a success. Now, you know, my personal belief here is that um, although we should not recognize North Korea as a nuclear armed state, um, although our long-term goal should remain the complete denuclearization of North Korea, I don't believe that's a viable short-term objective. I believe that our objectives would be best served uh, by... Um, trying to reduce the risk of war on the Korean Peninsula and by trying to cap the North Korean program to limit the amount of danger it poses. And what I would like to see coming out of the summit is the two leaders uh, commissioning their bureaucracies to work on how to make those goals achieve, uh, on how to realize those goals, which I think are ultimately achievable. Or, yeah, that's too strong, maybe ultimately achievable. Um, what I worry about is uh, a either no declaration and acrimonium recrimination, which I actually don't think is the most likely option here. Uh, I do think a more likely thing is a very general statement uh, in which North Korea remains vague about whether it's actually going to be uh, at, at actually going to de denuclearize, and in which the process falls apart in the days and months afterwards when it becomes clear that North Korea's idea of denuclearization is not our idea of denuclearization. But that said. As I said, we're going to know whether this summit failed immediately afterwards. It's going to take weeks, if not years, frankly, to know whether it was a success. As you well know, North Korea has been a thorn in the side of the U.S. for seven decades. And when President Barack Obama was leaving the White House in his meeting with President Trump, he said that North Korea and Kim Jong-un in particular will be the biggest problem on his plate. What's changed? Why now? Why is North Korea coming to the table? Mm -hmm. So, you know... I the meeting you referenced between President Obama and then-President-elect Trump, uh, in which uh, President Obama flagged up North Korea as the biggest national security challenge facing the United States. Um, I think we know why President Obama said that. Like, the North Korea's nuclear missile program that we've seen move on, achieve some very significant accomplishments rapidly in the last year. You know, I'm, I'm sure that President Obama was told by the intelligence community that those were in the pipeline. I think we've seen them now. Um, my guess is that two or three things have changed in the past year or so. Uh, what the North Koreans say is they have now perfected their nuclear and missile capabilities. Uh, in the when North Korea announced a moratorium on nuclear and missile testing and announced the shutdown of its test site, uh, I think it was about three or four weeks ago now, events are moving so fast it's kind of hard to remember the timeline for all of this. What North Korea said was it could take those steps because it had perfected its nuclear and missile programs. It didn't need to test anymore. Um, 
I think by our standards, clearly North Korea has a very rudimentary capability. Uh, but I think the North Koreans might judge it as adequate for the time being. Uh, so I think that's one thing that's changed. Um, I think, uh, you know, I don't think there's any question that U.S. Um, sanctions have played some role in driving North Korea to the table. Uh, you know, there is evidence that North Korea's economy has been hurt somewhat by the sanctions. Uh, I by no means think think that's the be-all and the end-all, but I think that's a factor. Uh, another thing that's changed has been the South Korean leadership. Uh, um, you know, a bit, bit, bit more than a year, again, if I remember the timeline here correctly. Um, but, you know, President Moon has made diplomatic outreach to um, Kim Jong-un. Um, I think both leaders see value to trying to create peace on the Korean peninsula. Uh, I think part of what Kim Jong-un is also trying to do here is drive a wedge between the U.S. and South Korea. Um, you know, from his perspective, if he could, if he can cause enormous friction between the U.S. and South Korea, and in some ideal world, the breakup of the alliance, which I think is unlikely but not impossible, um, that would be a big win for Kim Jong-un. So, you know, there have been a number of concrete changes in the last year, uh, which have resulted in this extremely high stakes, high risk uh, diplomatic endeavor. I want to come back to these issues, but let's talk about you. Why is this your area of expertise and your area of interest? Well, I mean, I, I uh, um, you know, I, my, my background is in physics. I'm originally a theoretical physicist. Uh, I got interested in um, you know, initially, my first job in the nuclear policy field was studying verification uh, and first got interested in North Korea, thinking about if North Korea were to give up its nuclear weapons, uh, how you would go about verifying that fact. Um, you know, I reached a conclusion in 2009. I was just looking back at this paper the other day. Not just verification with North Korea would be difficult, but the results would very likely be inconclusive. Even back in 2009, if North Korea really has given up everything, if it, if it were to give up everything, it would be extremely hard for it to prove it had actually given up everything, even with the best will in the world. Conversely, if North Korea was cheating, it could be extremely difficult for us to prove it was cheating. So it's not just it's difficult, it's that the results of technical verification would likely be inconclusive. Um, you know, now, nine years later, the problems have got even more difficult. Verification would likely be even more inconclusive. I mean, I think people underestimate how difficult verification in North Korea is likely to be. Anyway, that was how I first got interested in North Korea. Um, and more, you know, more recently as a policy wonk, as a nuclear policy wonk, you know, how do you not think about North Korea? Um, you know, it's it, it, it sometimes the issue is right at the top of the agenda. But even when it's not, it's not far off the top of, uh, of, of the agenda. Explain the developments in North Korea and what has happened this month with regard to the Iran nuclear deal. Is there any connection between mm -hmm. what the president announced with regard to Iran and pulling out of a close agreement with our allies, including your home country, Great Britain, and what's happening in North Korea? Mm -hmm. um, so as, 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 as you, know, you correctly point out, on Tuesday, the president announced U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA, the Iran deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Um, there are kind of two different schools of thought here. Um, you know, the administration has made the argument that this is a show of U.S. strength, um, that by, you know, withdrawing from the Iran deal, um, it shows the U.S. Uh, will drive a very hard bargain with North Korea. Um, I don't really subscribe to that argument. I, you know, my personal view is that the Iran deal was a very good deal. 
Um, it was a deal that uh, you know, verifiably prevented Iran from getting a nuclear weapon for a very significant period of time. Um, and I think that it is, you know, it's, as I've said before, I do not believe the short-term goal of denuclearizing North Korea is really achievable. Um, so I think, you know, we're not going to drive as hard a bar- we're not going to succeed in driving a harder, even as hard a bargain with North Korea as we did with Iran. There's another school of thought that says pulling out of the Iran deal makes dealing with North Korea harder because the U.S. gave its word to the Iran deal, uh, and pulling out of that shows that um, you know the U.S. can't be trusted on its word, uh, and that's going to make it harder to reach a deal with North Korea. I think there's a lot to this argument with future proliferators. You know, if other non-nuclear weapon states out there breached their obligations, tried to acquire nuclear weapons. I think in that case, it probably would be harder for us to strike a deal with North, uh, with, with, with those other states um, because, you know, they will worry that if the president changes, then the U.S. will just rip up the deal again. I actually don't think that applies to North Korea. Um, I think the amount that North Korea trusts the U.S. is exactly zero, which is the same amount that we trust the North Koreans right now. I mean, there is just no trust in that dyad between the U.S. and North Korea. So, you know, pulling out of the Iran deal may affect other countries, but I don't think it's going to, you know, it can't make the level of trust go lower than zero because it's already as low as it can possibly be. So I actually, in that sense, I actually don't think there's a huge amount of connection between what happens with with Iran and the Iran deal and, and, and North Korea. The one area in which I think it may make a difference is in our international partners. Um, you know, Steve, the um, the Iran deal was possible because a number of other states were willing to sanction Iran, hurt their own economies in the process to force Iran to the table to negotiate with us. European states, including, you know, most importantly, uh, the UK, France and Germany, uh, and not just China and Russia, but, you know, India, Japan, South Korea, critical buyers of Iranian oil, they hurt their own economies to create the pressure for the Iran deal. And the reason that they were willing to do it was because they believed the U.S. was negotiating in good faith over the Iran deal. I think those countries may have second thoughts in playing the roles we would like them to play on North Korea, particularly putting pressure on North Korea to force it to deal, if they believe that the U.S. isn't going to stick to the deal. So that's the one sense in which I think what happened with Iran may affect what happens with, 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 with North Korea. Can you explain how North Korea was able to obtain the materials mm-hmm. to build these nuclear weapons? And was Russia a key player? Mm-hmm. Is Russia a key player today in this? Here's the big point. This is 1940s technology. You know, we built the bomb from scratch in 1945. At that time, it was an amazing cutting-edge achievement. But that was over 70 years ago. And cutting-edge technology 70 years ago is not cutting-edge technology today. So, you know, I don't want to claim that building the bomb is easy or it's trivial or anything like that. It's not. There's a lot of hard science and engineering, particularly engineering, that goes into it. But at the end of the day, if a country is going to devote a huge percentage of its national of its national resources to building the bomb, it's going to achieve doing that. The, the fundamental barriers to building the bomb are political, not technical. Now, it took North Korea a long time. It cost huge amounts of resources um you know the north koreans starved their own people it may have received some help along the way 
Um, you know, I think there is a lot to be understood about at what time the North Koreans received help with their program. Some of it we, we know because it was open. Some of it, I suspect, it was more clandestine. And, you know, there were, we, it's been documented that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, you know, there were some Russian missile scientists who were caught on the way to North Korea, which suggests that others probably made it there. So you know, the North Koreans didn't do it all themselves. They unquestionably received help along the way and they stole components illegally and whatever. But actually, I think recently this has been a largely self-sufficient program. Um, the evidence seems to me to indicate that although they have been, for instance, producing rocket motors that very closely resemble other people's designs, they now have the ability to do that indigenously. Uh, and as I say, the fundamental point here, this is now old technology. This is stuff we mastered in the 1940s. It's not as cutting edge now as it was then. If you had the chance to sit down with Donald Trump and say, Mr. President, here are some things you absolutely must do, and here are some things you must be careful of, what would you tell him? Well, I would I would suggest to the president, firstly, that um, my assessment is it's extremely unlikely North Korea wants to disarm. And that when North Korea talks about complete denuclearization, it's not what we mean by complete denuclearization. I tell him that when Kim Jong-un addresses the Workers' Party in Korea, he still refers to North Koreans' nuclear weapons as their treasured sword. He still talks about the incredible achievement of manufacturing these weapons. Um, and that he doesn't sound like a guy that's about to give them up. Um, and I would, you know, I would explain to him that I think... While the United States should not abandon the long-term goal of denuclearizing North Korea, we should try to object. Uh, we should try to create short-term, intermediate objectives that make us safer. And I would urge him firstly to focus on reducing the risk of war around the Korean Peninsula. Um, I think last summer, last August, September, in particular, I think there was a real chance we could have had a war with North Korea. Not because either leader necessarily wanted a war, but because we could have escalated into one. Um, you know, last summer, North Korea threatened two absolutely egregious acts to fire missiles in the vicinity of Guam and slightly more ambiguously to conduct a live nuclear test over the Pacific. I think those threats are still on the table, incidentally. But had North Korea carried out those provocations, which would have been egregious, I mean, make no mistake about it, I think we may have felt the need to respond militarily. I think we could have ended up in an escalating conflict that could have ended with literally a nuclear war. And I'm not, like, I don't say that lightly. I think we literally could have been in a nuclear war. Um, so I think, firstly, we should focus on uh, reducing the risk of conflict on the Korean Peninsula. Um, secondly, I think we should focus on capping the North Korean program. You know, North Korea has offered a moratorium on nuclear and missile testing. You know, I think it would be great to try and extend that indefinitely. Um, that's going to take some inducements. Um, so, you know, that's 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 what I would suggest to the president that you that, that, that the U.S. should try to achieve. I mean, I just note that's a very different vision from the one that the president and his senior advisors have articulated publicly. And in reading so many analysis pieces over the last couple of weeks, uh, references to Gaddafi in Libya come up, that North Korea Kim Jong-un mm -hmm. realizes what happened in Libya and, to your point, wants to make sure that he has that treasured sword in his arsenal. Yeah, I mean, this comes up a lot in North Korean propaganda. Um, I mean, you know, 
and the National Security Advisor, John Bolton, has invoked the Libya model. And when Libya gave up its weapons of mass destruction programs in 2004, you know, just after the Iraq invasion in 2003, you know, Libya was basically willing to say, take it all, invited in the inspectors who were initially UK and US nationals, um, and just kind of gave everything up. Um, now, and, you know, John Bolton has talked about the same model in um, um, uh, North Korea. You know, one thing to realize about the Libya model is, you know, Libya's program hadn't advanced very far. There were literally centrifuges that had never been unpacked that were sitting there in boxes. Um, you know, North Korea has operated nuclear reactors with radioactive fuel. I mean, you physically can't pack up the North Korean program like you could the um, uh, uh, Libyan program. But the other big difference is that, you know, U.S. airstrikes... I mean, Fair U.S., French, and British airstrikes over Libya um, ultimately led to the top the toppling of Gaddafi. Now you can think those airstrikes were a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, I had very mixed feelings about them at the time. I think I still do in many ways. I think it was an agonizingly difficult decision about what to do about those airstrikes. But one downside of those airstrikes uh, was that it sent out the message that if you give up your nuclear weapons, uh, you risk. Um, having your regime toppled. And that's something the North Koreans have continually echoed in their propaganda. Um, and I think, you know, North Korea views nuclear weapons as being a way of guaranteeing the survival of the regime. I mean, beyond just North Korean rhetoric, which I've stressed so far, because I think it's revealing, but beyond just North Korean rhetoric, um, you know, I think, if look, if I were Kim Jong-un, I wouldn't give up my nukes. You know, me as James Acton, I don't think the US has a plan to go and invade and occupy North Korea. Me as the North Korean leader, sure, of course, that's what I would worry about. And in terms of the theatrics of this summit, based on what you know with regard to North Korea, the setting, the venue, the pomp and the ceremony that will take place, if there is uh, that type of welcoming ceremony, what do you think the North Koreans are expecting? And is that important? Look, every leader loves their pomp and ceremony. I mean, one could find a few exceptions, but Democrats, Republicans, Americans, non-Americans, everyone loves their pomp and ceremony. Everyone, you know... So, so I'm sure there will be a lot of pomp and ceremony around the around the summit. All of that stuff is almost always coordinated very well in advance. It's all planned. Actually, with the to be fair, with the Kim Moon summit, the summit between the leaders of North and South Korea last last week, two weeks ago now, um, we did see some impromptu moments. Um, you know, uh, Kim crossed the border from north to south, and then invited um, Moon to take a few steps north of the border to do another handshake. Now, you know, everyone made a very big deal about that, and it, it, was, it, was, it, it, it was significant. Um, we're also only talking about here a few steps. I mean, that's the extent to which these things are, chore are choreographed in advance, that taking a few unplanned steps becomes, you know, this huge deal. So, you know, I'm sure at the Singapore summit, everything is going to be choreographed enormously in advance. Um, and, you know, as I say, every leader likes their good headlines and their good TV. Um, I don't think it makes any difference to the outcome of the summit. I mean, you know, what makes a difference to the outcome of the summit primarily is the preparation you put into it. Secondarily, it's the stuff you say in the room. Um, and as I say, it's going to take a long time to know whether it was successful. But I ask the question because I'm wondering if it means that Kim Jong-un is now on the world stage, something that he hasn't seen outside of Pyongyang or the oh, borders of North Korea. Be, I think he would be on the world stage whether or not this summit takes place. I mean, we've now seen him go to China twice. 
We've now seen him um, have a summit with the leader of South Korea. I mean, we had all the Olympics diplomacy, which didn't involve him personally, but put North Korea on the world stage. I mean, I think North Korea is... This clearly raises North Korea's profile, but, you know, North Korea was very much on the world stage, has very much put itself on the world stage this year. Let me go back to something that you mentioned earlier. The measure of success will be what and when? Well, I mean, success can only be measured relative to your goals. You know, success is not something that exists in the abstract. It's whether or not you meet your goals. So the first question will be, how, you know, what goals do the two leaders set themselves after the summit? Assuming there's a joint statement after the summit, which I think is very likely but not inevitable. Um, if the goal is complete, complete denuclearization of North Korea, then that's the bar for success. If the goal is, um, you know, re- reducing tensions, then you have a different bar for success. So, you know, the first thing is you can only assess success based on the goals that the leaders articulate. Um, you know, if and, and again, the timeline is going to depend on those goals. I mean, if the goal is complete denuclearization of North Korea within a year, which U.S. officials have sometimes indicated that's the goal, very easy to measure success. If the goal is kind of reducing the risk of war, you have to look over a prolonged period of time about whether tensions are lower. Um, you know, it, it's very hard for me to give an answer in the abstract about what success means without knowing how the leaders define success at this stage. We will check in with you often. James Acton, he is the co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thanks for joining us here in our C-SPAN radio studios. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly here on C-SPAN Radio and anywhere you listen to your podcasts.